1: Hiya, this month on the show, we're diving into the stuff that makes up two-thirds of the Earth's surface. Can you use genetics to figure out what's in the water? We put the science to the test by making this geneticist guess our mystery fish.
2: It does just look like tap water with a few bits in it.
1: Plus, a story about whales and dolphins. What do you lose when you leave the land? I'm Phil Sansom, and this is Naked Genetics. Naked Genetics. The other week, I was talking to a geneticist who used to work on whales. She told me that she could take some of the water a whale had been swimming in, even after it had gone, and from that, tell what kind of whale it was. I thought, okay, that's pretty cool, but surely you can't be so confident you'll get it right. Can you? Well, there's no captive whales in the UK, probably quite rightly, so we couldn't test it, but we could test the next best thing. Which is why last week... I took a trip to meet Tony Sapsford.
3: My name's Tony. and I'm the owner of Frog End Aquatics.
1: And Frog End Aquatics, in case you can't hear it in the background, is chock full of
3: bubbling fish tanks. Basically, it's a, a large tropical aquarium setup, if you like. There's 86 tanks in total. 86? 86 tropical tanks, 10 cold water tanks, two big koi ponds and four marine tanks. How many fish are in here? Christ almighty, got to be probably five or six thousand.
1: I was there for one type of fish in particular, but as Tony led me past tank after colourful tank, I couldn't help getting distracted.
3: Wow. As you can see, the seahorses, shrimps, this is saltwater. God,
1: I forget how beautiful seahorses are. They're
3: tiny and jet black. They are, yeah. Now, Tony, have you got a favourite fish? Yes. I mean, to be honest with you, these days my favourites are puffers. When I started in the hobby 30 odd years ago, that was one of the first things I had was a giant puffer fish. Really? And that's sort of what got me into it. I had a big one, he was nearly 15 inches long. And he'll literally fill up with water, and then when he wants to go down, he'll go to the surface and spit the water out. Really? Yeah, yeah, they're cool.
1: OK, enough distractions. I was there with a job to do.
3: Right, I was just heading over here.
1: I handed my jar to Tony we approach the tank containing the mystery fish. Oh my God, you're putting
3: your hand in. It's not going to hurt me, trust me. Are you sure? Yeah. You oh, you're see. just leaving your hand in there. Yeah, they literally, they're so shy. They'll just go and hide behind the uplift.
1: I thought they'd absolutely go for you. No, not at all.
3: They're very, very shy things.
1: So I had my sample of water from the tank of this mystery fish. What do you expect to find in there?
3: Uh, probably fish poo. <laughs> they should find fish poo and probably um, um, any remnants or whatever they've been eating today. I mean, they're quite messy feeders. Tony Sapsford there. Now, the next step, to
1: take it over to the lab at gene sequencing company Illumina.
2: Hi, I'm Louise Fraser. I work at Illumina, and I have a a team who focus on extracting DNA from human blood samples, saliva samples.
1: Louise, I've got a present for you.
2: Wow. (laughs) This is very different to what we would normally receive. Normally we would receive a sample in a a sterile container. So what I'm looking at is a jam jar, which appears to be full of water.
1: Are you going to have to turn down my sample?
2: No, uh, we're always very happy to receive all kinds of samples.
1: (laughs) Very diplomatic of you. I'm going to give this to you.
2: Thank you. It does just look like tap water with a few bits in it.
1: Now, I'm not going to tell you what kind of fish was in that tank, but just off the bat, any guesses?
2: I don't know, goldfish or some of those very large koi carp type fish. I don't know. You just can't tell from the water.
1: Tell me what exactly you're going to do with this sample first.
2: What we have here is about half a litre of water, and that volume is, is too big to easily process in the lab. So we would concentrate any of the DNA that's in that sample by flowing the, the water through a filter We would then lyse any of the cellular material in the sample, which means to break open or pop open the cells to release the DNA into the solution. And we would then be able to isolate the DNA by binding the DNA to a magnetic bead so we can easily pull out the DNA.
1: Apart from the fish that was in that water, are you expecting to find any DNA from anything else?
2: Yes, we would. You would expect to find the microbiome of the fish tank. So that's bacteria, for example, that may like to live in those fish tanks. And knowing the sequences of those bacteria might help us to identify what the fish was. And we might find traces of what was originally in your jam jar.
0: Oh,
1: no. That
2: that depends how well it's been washed out. (laughs) If you
1: can get to the jam... And figure out what kind of jam that was. I'll be so impressed.
2: Uh, No promises. We'll we'll aim for the fish and we'll see what else we get.
1: Now, what about the food that the fish was eating? Are you expecting to find that as well?
2: We might find DNA sequences from that. I'm, I'm not quite sure what goes into fish food. Are you excited? I'm very excited. I'll be very interested to see the results, see what we can find. Before we were able to do high-depth sequencing on samples like this, you would only look for things that you knew were there. But with sequencing, we can look for everything and then try and figure out what was there in the first place. Good luck. All right, thank you very much.
1: Illumina's Louise Fraser. Do you have any guesses about what the mystery fish might have been? Stick around till later to find out. While Louise was off doing the analysis, I did some more research into the science behind getting DNA out of water. It turns out that this is extremely useful for wildlife conservation. You can use genetics to conduct a marine audit where you categorize all the living things in an ocean environment to figure out how healthy it is. It's called sequencing trace and environmental DNA. And the patterns that you get are called DNA barcodes. They tell you what species are in there. Mike Bunce, chief scientist at New Zealand's Environmental Protection Agency, is one of the leading figures in this field. And Chris Smith spoke to him last year when he was leading a lab at Australia's Curtin University, and in particular, looking into whale sharks.
4: What environmental DNA is, is our ability to sort of capture DNA that's just exuded into any biological sample. So what we do is... We'll take a big bucket of seawater, we'll filter that onto a very small membrane to capture all the particles that are floating around in that water column, tease out the DNA molecules, we'll photocopy up specific bits of that DNA that can tell us things like what fish can we find contained within that.
0: So this is like a DNA fishing expedition in the sense that you don't know what's in that bucket of water, you just know there's some DNA in there, and then asking, well actually what is in here, by comparing it to DNA sequences we know.
4: That's right, you know, when people generate DNA sequences from known organisms, it generates the reference barcode collection. Then we can transfer onto an environmental sample like seawater, and we can look at all the fish DNA barcodes within that, or all of the crab DNA barcodes from crustaceans, and we can compare those to the references and then make inferences about what is present there are we finding new species is a quite a high profile example of the HMS Sydney which is a shipwreck that went down in, in World War Two, and we got some water from that extracted the DNA from it and we find a fish that's only 90% related to anything on the database so this is probably a fish not yet known because most of the fish are actually on reference databases now so I think we've discovered something new.
0: Where is this DNA coming from is this DNA that's been for want of a better phrase pooped out by the fish you're effectively finding
4: fecal material that's been pooped out of anything is is one major source of it but organisms in any environment defecate urinate slough cells off things drop off it it's just in a marine environment all of this dna is sort of homogenized into a nice little soup ready for us to collect up we've got a natural made blender that's already been sort of blended together for us
0: and someone mentioned to me that, uh, talking of blending things, that you're actually looking at some output from one of the largest fish in the sea.
4: That's right. As part of a, um work that we're doing with one of our PhD students, they've collected poo from, from whale sharks. And so they, when they defecate, when they're up at the surface, they get out a net and try and scoop some of that material up, and then we take it back to the lab, we blend it up, we use our environmental DNA barcoding approaches and look at what we can tease out of it.
0: Without being too graphic, what does whale shark poo look like? Is this not just liquid?
4: Yeah, it's a big plume of brown goop that comes out the back end. And you do have to use a net to collect it because there's little solids floating around in there and we literally just scoop it up. So it's not overly pleasant to send a diver swimming through a massive plume of whale shark poo, but you've got to make these sacrifices for science. What are you finding in there? There's a couple of things we're finding. First of all, we can get whale shark DNA out of Poop, and that's significant because we can then sample that environment for whale sharks non invasively without touching the organisms. But we're also getting the window into all the sort of zooplankton, copepods, decapods, all these small little krill like creatures that big filter feeders um, pick up. And what we're trying to do, because we've got whale shark samples from around the world that we've collected now, is to try and understand how they're eating different things at different times of the years in different geographical locations.
0: And you'll be able to track that?
4: Well, hopefully. We've only got about 25 different whale shark poo samples that have been sent in by some of our collaborators because they're quite rare. Most of the time they don't poo when they're in the surface, apparently. And so we try and pick up what we can, where we can.
0: The, the idea being that then you'll be able to, to track not just where they go and what they're eating, but when they're eating it, and therefore what food supplies they depend on where. So we'll have a better idea about conservation, that kind of thing.
4: Yeah, well, at its very base conservation of species is about conservation of habitats and when you know the food web of whatever species you're trying to conserve is you've got a better indication of of how they might respond
0: but how do you know that the signals you're getting correspond to something that the the animal has actually eaten and not given how sensitive your techniques are not just stuff that's floating around in the water they've just pooed into
4: again it's a good question and and the simple answer is we don 't it 's probably a combination of, of both. We end up with these sort of Russian dole effects where even if a, a large krill has eaten other types of organisms and a whale shark eats that, we end up with you know dolls within dolls within dolls and so to answer that question more frankly we don 't really know, but it 's better than the information that we 've got at the moment, which is just looking at a big plume of brown stuff.
0: I suppose one of the major benefits of doing this is that you're effectively auditing what's out there without actually having to go out there apart from armed with a bucket, where previously it would be fishing expeditions, it would be diving expeditions and relentless counting expeditions. This is much easier.
4: It is easier. We can literally wade into the ocean and scoop up a bucket. But I will say there's lots of different methods for auditing marine ecosystems from everything from basic underwater cameras through to visual census. And DNA has really just added another, quite a powerful part of that toolkit. And like many scientific methods, the more proxies or more ways you've got it looking at a question, the better your answers are going to be. Truly, environmental DNA is a powerful part of this new toolkit because it can look at multiple levels. It doesn't just look at fish, which is historically how people have assayed marine environments assess them. We get to look at all the crustaceans and even the bacteria that are contained within that and phytoplankton and corals because collectively that is what makes up the base of the food web in marine ecosystems. That was Mike Bunce from New
1: Zealand's EPA. So our little fish tank experiment actually uses a cutting-edge conservation technique. Nice. Speaking of which, after a week and a half, the results are in. What genes did Louise find in the water? And can she identify our mystery fish? That's after the break.
5: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Hello, sorry to butt in, Katie here from the Naked Scientists. Did you know we make other naked shows too?
3: The fraction of all humanity who has actually gotten a chance to see their own brain is very tiny and you are welcomed to that club.
5: So if you enjoy musing over the mind, reflecting on thought or frankly feel bamboozled by the brain, check out Naked Neuroscience.
3: Well my face hurts now so yeah let's go with spicy.
5: (laughs) Don't go down into the creepy cellar. And turn the light on. <laughs> exactly. Access the full archive via nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back. This is Naked Genetics. I'm Phil Sansom. We've been testing out the claim that by looking at the genes inside water from a fish tank, you can tell what kind of fish was swimming around in there. That's because whether it's fish poop or plankton or little bits of bacteria, it all counts as environmental DNA. And by building up a profile of what environmental DNA is in a sample, you can match it to a specific environment or a specific fish. Back to Illumina's Louise Fraser.
2: The results just came in yesterday.
1: Ready to guess.
2: Oh, absolutely. What we got was around 500 million DNA sequencing reads, and we compared them to a database that contains all of the species that have ever been sequenced completely, and about 98% of the reads actually didn't align to anything in the database Most likely, those would be bacterial samples.
1: But those aren't new to science creatures. They just haven't had their genome sequenced yet.
2: That's right. They're they're just things that are not currently in the database.
1: Okay, 98% Um, unknowns.
2: Of the remaining 2%, they broadly fall into four different groups. 95% of the classified reads are bacterial. 5% are from animals and 1% from plants. And then there's a tiny fraction that come from fungi and, and archaea. The most common animal species in the water sample was actually human. But the second most common animal was a family of fish called cichlids. And so that's what we think was in the tank.
1: Is that your final answer? Louise, I hate to tell you, it's not a cichlid. Okay. Any other ideas?
2: Um, yeah, so the, there's low level of DNA from a number of other animals, such as rice fishes, carp, and even piranhas.
1: Okay, this is interesting because it's actually one of those. Okay. Do you want to guess which one?
2: I, I, gosh, the, I'd like to think it was the piranhas, maybe.
1: It is Piranhas.
2: It is piranhas. It was
1: piranhas.
2: (laughs) Okay, wow. That was a brave person that took that sample.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you guess right? Our mystery fish is indeed a piranha. Now, Louise got piranhas as one of the results on her list, but it was far from at the top. What might be going on there is that the water in the aquarium tanks isn't actually separated from each other. The water actually gets filtered through a number of them, all as part of one system. So I guess we didn't make Louise identify a piranha from just a piranha tank so much as we made her identify a piranha from a whole aquarium filled with different fish.
2: It would be interesting to know if there are cichlids within the same aquarium and whether we're just picking that up from a different tank.
1: There are and quite a few of them.
2: Right. That, that might make sense then. There was also some other interesting uh, DNA sequences that we picked up. Some mouse or rodent DNA in there.
1: You should have all the pieces to the puzzle by now.
2: Oh, is it part of the fish food? Oh, yes. Okay, right. That makes sense.
1: For some context, here is the audio that I didn't play you earlier, and it's from Tony Sapsford at Frog End Aquatics. Do you want me to say what they
3: are? Yeah, please. Okay. This is the prana tank. They've got red underbellies, red tails, large, large eyes. I mean, they're only babies. They've only just got their teeth. So they're only about four inches long at the moment, maybe five inches. You can barely see them. You can barely see the teeth, yeah. Oh, my God, you're putting your hand in. It's not going to hurt me, trust me. Are you sure? Yeah. Are they not aggressive? Only in like a pack when they're feeding and stuff like that. Like if you had a sick one in there, they'd annihilate it. Am I right to be scared of them or should I not fear them? No. No, there's nothing to be scared of, unless you're going to jump in a, a lake in the Amazon with a whole pack of them. I don't think there's anything to worry about. Most people who buy fish like that think, "Oh, it's great. I've got to have a piranha," but then they get bored of them very quickly because they don't do anything. Do people buy them because they think they're being yeah, they're, hard? Yeah, yeah, I think that's this. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Basically, that's what. Oh, I've got to have one of them as a piranha. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And all they do is get big and boring.
1: Turns out, we don't need to be as scared of piranhas as I might have thought. And when it comes to gene sequencing, you can identify a fish from the water in its tank. You just might also get 20 other nearby fish and thousands of different types of bacteria. Finally, in the last part of the show. Tens of millions of years ago, cetaceans, that's whales and dolphins, evolved back into the oceans. And to survive, they needed all sorts of complex new features, like fins and blowholes, plus, of course, the genes to make them. But would you have expected that they also lost some genes as well? Well, 85, in fact, according to a new study by German and American scientists. Producer Mariana Marashoyu has the story.
5: When you hear of whales and dolphins, what comes to mind? perhaps smooth, shiny animals in the depths of the sea, surrounded by dark blue-green water with faint shimmering from the light far above, sometimes jumping out of the water for a breath of air or just for a little play. Wait a minute. Whales and dolphins are mammals. Millions of years ago, they used to live on land. Their ancestors probably looked like wolves on hooves. How did they end up living underwater? Michael Hiller and his colleagues from the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Cell Biology and Genetics investigated a certain type of genetic change that may have helped whales and dolphins in this transition from land to water.
6: We pretty much used the genomes of um, living whales and dolphins, and we searched for genes that exhibit the same mutation in these species. If you have exactly the same mutation in the genomes of different mammals that are related, this tells you that this mutation occurred already in the ancestors of these species. And with this, we could single out 85 genes that were lost during this transition from land to water.
5: Why would we want to lose a gene?
6: I think there are two main principles that could explain when genes actually get lost. One is, and this probably explains the majority of the gene losses also that we found in this study, that the function of the gene is no longer required. And then there is no selection pressure to maintain the gene, and it will eventually accumulate mutations that destroy its function, and then we would call the gene as lost. And the second, potentially more interesting, although probably also much, much rarer, mechanism is that the loss of the gene is actually a benefit. We think we found in this study a few cases where the loss of genes could have been beneficial for the ancestors of whales and dolphins when they actually transitioned from land to water.
5: One example that they found that seems to have been very useful in this transition is the elimination of a protein that repairs DNA damage. Because DNA is basically just a chemical entity, it's subject to assault from the environment and interaction with other chemical molecules, which can damage it. DNA damage happens all the time, but the body has repair proteins that walk over the DNA molecule and try to fix any damage that occurs. Isn't it a bad thing that whales lost one of these proteins? Well, it turns out that these proteins are sometimes a bit faulty, and some of them are more accurate at repair than others.
6: We found that whales and dolphins have lost the protein that's the most sloppiest. What is interesting is that uh, the ability to repair DNA damage is actually increased, so the fidelity um, is higher. And the mechanism behind why losing this protein then enhances the fidelity of DNA repair is most likely that the other proteins that are more accurate actually compensate for the loss.
5: Having an increased ability to repair DNA damage may explain how whales and dolphins are able to survive for so long underwater as the NA suffers a higher risk of damage during the deep diving and surfacing cycle from oxidative stress, when there is an imbalance between reactive oxygen species and antioxidants. And this is not the only gene-loss-based adaptation that seems to help cetaceans thrive. Some of the genes that help with blood clotting were also inactivated, which suggests a reduced risk of blood clots forming inside the blood vessels as they get more and more compressed during those deep diving periods. The team may have also found a gene loss that explains how whales and dolphins are able to sleep underwater without drowning.
6: The loss of the melatonin synthesising genes, so melatonin being the, the sleep-regulating hormone, is potentially a link or an association with a particular form of sleep that cetaceans, or whales and dolphins, have. And this is the only sleep with one brain hemisphere at a time, while the other brain hemisphere is awake and likely coordinates movement and coming back to the surface for breathing.
5: While the researchers looked in this study at only one type of change in the genome, the loss of genes, there are many other type of genetic mutations and changes that happened.
6: There is definitely much more to learn and uh, our understanding of what are the changes in the DNA that are required to turn a land animal into an aquatic animal is uh, at the moment quite rudimentary. So hopefully you'll make progress with that in, in the future.
1: That was Mariana Marashoyu speaking with Michael Hiller from the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Cell Biology and Genetics, whose paper came out in September in the journal Science Advances. That is it for this month's Naked Genetics. A big, watery round of applause to Tony Sapsford at Frog and Aquatics, Louise Fraser-Ursula Arndt and Stuart MacArthur at Illumina, Mike Bunce, Chris Smith, Michael Hiller, and Mariana Marashoyu. If you go on our website, nakedscientists.com genetics, click on this week's show, and then go to the page labeled Mystery Fish Revealed, you can see the full results from the Piranha tank sequencing. Check it out. It's really interesting. If you like the show, you know what to do. Leave a review or tweet at Naked Genetics, or email me, phil at nakedscientists.com, with your fun genetics facts. I love to hear them. And we're back next month. Take care.